0: Turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, chapter 12, beginning with verse 27. We're almost done. Just one more Sunday. Uh, we'll finish this book. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephthonites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba in Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people on the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them, Hashiach and half of the leaders of Judah and Hazariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemiah, and Jeremiah, um, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemiah, and son of Methaniah, and son of Mic- Micaiah, uh, son of Zechur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemiah, Azarel, uh, Melial, uh, Galali, Maia, Nethanael, Judah, and Hanai, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them at the foundation gate. They went straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of ovens to the Broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshani, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hanel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to the halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me, and the priests, Elohim, Messiah, Menahmen, Mani- Micaiah. Eloianai, Zechariah and Hananiah with trumpets and Messiah Shemiah, Eleazar Uzi Jehonan Melchijah Elam and Ezra and the singers sang with Jezriah as the leader and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy for God had made, excuse me, the women. For God had made them rejoice with great joy, the women, the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, according to the fields of the towns of Judah, rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers and they set apart that which was for Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for the son of Aaron. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you as we come for your word that you have given to us. And Lord, we thank you that you are so precise that you actually put the names of places and the names of people And all these things, Lord, that even in our day and time, as we are digging up civilizations and we find evidence of these things, we can see that the things that are written in the word of God are true. That these aren't just made up stories, but these are real people. These are real places. We thank you, God, for caring about that kind of depth of detail. But Lord, we also thank you for your word um, and for your spirit, and pray that you might work in our hearts by faith, Lord, that we would know you, that we would trust you, even those that may not know you this morning, that if they leave this place, that they would. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, as we think of the, the Christian life, uh, sometimes it, it's hard. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you know that from experience. But you also know that from God's word, God uh, reveals that, that the Christian life is not always easy. It's described in the Bible as a battle. Paul talks about fighting the good fight of faith. Uh, It's a race that you press on that you might finish to the end. Uh, uh, Paul, in writing to the Romans says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of God's great mercies, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now I know that doesn't sound like a, a lot of fun. Doesn't seem like the Christian life is a piece of cake, and it's true. And if you're a believer here today in the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand what I'm talking about. Even sometimes studying the Bible or praying or witnessing can be a challenge. Living a holy life in the midst of ex- temptation in this world can be difficult. And, and Jesus even commands his followers to, uh, to follow him, to take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. Uh, he's, it's a call to come and even to suffer as he has suffered. So the Christian life is a struggle. It's, it's not always comfortable. Now, you might be saying at this point in time, Pastor Rick, we have visitors here. Why are you talking? Why are you talking like this? You know, but the Christian life, that's not all there is to the Christian life. You know, it can be difficult, but it is joyous. It is glorious to know the living God, to live in relationship with Him, to be able to cast our burdens upon Him, to know that our sins are taken away. We live in an awful world in many ways, and there is much opportunity, not only for sin against one another, but shame and, and hardship you know, and loneliness. And people experience those things every day, but for the believer, they not only have that relationship with God, where there can be that joy, even in the midst of that pain, but there's uh, uh, a relationship with other believers. And uh, we're not a perfect church, and I oftentimes joke and jest and say, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that the people in our church are Christians, they wouldn't hang out with one another. They are just so different. And you look at this and you think, what ties them together? But it is that love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful as a pastor for that. And to see the way that God is working to bring people together who are very different, to love each other and to be there to walk alongside one another. And so, you know, while the Christian life can be difficult sometimes, there are pleasant and sweet times of rest and peace and fellowship with God. So along with the groans of spiritual exertion, there are times of joyous celebration. And and what we read here in Nehemiah 12 is one of those times of celebration. Uh, the Jews had endured much difficulty and trials in their life. And part of that was because of their own sin and their own rebellion. I mean, not these particular Jews, but their ancestors that had come before them had rebelled against God Over a period of years and years and years. And God was very patient with them. But because he loved them. Just like you would love your children. And so because you love them. Sometimes you have to discipline them. And that's very difficult as a parent. We don't always want to do that. But we know if I truly love them. I have to discipline them. So God disciplined his children. And he sent them to exile in Babylon. You know to humble them. To, to cause them to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord and to trust in him. So they've gone through difficult times, some because of their own doing. But God, in his mercy, he called his people back from exile. And he called them back to Israel, to the promised land, specifically to Jerusalem, to the holy city, uh, because God was going to reestablish that relationship with his people um, He had never left them. He had never forsaken them. But they had forsaken him. But he was calling them back to live in relationship with him. And so he had them rebuild the temple. So that they might have that way of worshipping and fellowshipping with him. But the city in which they lived was still in ruins. The walls were destroyed from when the foreign nations had come and and attacked the city. The gates were burned. And the, the people were, um, well, let me just put it this way. If you look back at Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And there was a fellow Jew who had come from Israel. And so Jeremiah asked them, he said, how are things going with the exiles? And this is what we read in Nehemiah 1 verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. That was the existence of the Jews. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed, which meant that they were vulnerable to their enemies and any attack. And and of course, there was sort of a, a sense in which their reputation was destroyed because they were a people who had been conquered. And so... There wasn't much to rejoice in. As a matter of fact, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, when Nehemiah heard these words, he says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Well, Nehemiah not only prayed, but he took action. He went to the king and he did something sort of unprecedented. He asked for time off. uh, And he, he said, I want to go help my fellow Jews, rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. And the king granted him that time, uh, even though earlier the king had said the walls were not to be rebuilt. But he granted him that. And Nehemiah goes back and he inspects the walls and he rallies the people together to say, we need to rebuild these walls. And that wasn't without opposition. I mean, right away, as soon as Nehemiah hits the scene, there are those enemies that are right there uh, wanting to stop this work of the rebuilding of the wall. And they, they didn't always uh, come against God's people in a direct attack. And maybe in some ways that would have been easier. But oftentimes, like what Satan does today, he doesn't come against us outright. Instead, he seeks to discourage us, to cause us to worry and to fret and to be overwhelmed with the circumstances of our lives. So these enemies sought to do the same. Uh, with these people as a matter of fact at one point they did even set a trap for Nehemiah after time had gone by and they couldn't get the wall stopped the people kept working you know they thought "Well, we got to take this leader out this guy's too good of a leader and so they tried to, to kill him and so here they are only 52 days after Nehemiah hits the scene the walls are completed around the city now that wasn't without opposition like I said There was one point where the people were working and they had a trowel in one hand to rebuild the wall and they had a weapon in the other hand to protect themselves lest the enemy attack them. And so the wall was finished though and it was done because God had protected his people. As a matter of fact, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 6, and verse 16, Nehemiah describes the attitude of the enemies of God, the enemies of the Jews, who were surrounding them. This is what Nehemiah says. He goes, And when all our enemies had heard of it, that the wall had been completed, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. I love that. Fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So it wasn't just the Jews that recognized that God had done this. It was the enemies of the Jews who had recognized that this had been a miraculous thing that had taken place because God had done this. And so God showed his people his grace and he gave them strength and fortitude to face their enemies. But God wasn't done. Yes, the temple had been rebuilt, the city walls had been rebuilt, but God realized that the rebelliousness of the heart of the people of God's people needed to be addressed as well. And so we read in chapters 8, 9, and 10 about how the Word of God came to God's people, and they listened to it. And if you think our scripture readings this morning were long, they stood for like a half a day and listened to the Word of God read. And and as a matter of fact, it it cut them to the quick. And they realized their sin and their ignorance of God, and they repented of that sin, and they asked God to forgive them and they renewed their covenant with God. And some of the people moved into the, the city of Jerusalem. And now, what you see here is a people who once were greatly troubled and and, and living under shame that were heeding the call of God and now living in obedience to Him. And, and you see Nehemiah, who back in chapter one was weeping over Jerusalem because it was in shame. Now, he's leading the people in a celebration to dedicate the city to God. Uh, We read in uh, verse 43 of chapter 12, For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women, the children also rejoiced. In other words, all the people did. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You see, God had been at work in their midst, and they were rejoicing as his people. Now, brothers and sisters, have we not received even greater grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than than our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament? Ought we not to cherish the grace of God more than they? Well, when we do cherish the grace of God, it leads to a life of joy and rejoicing and gladness. And I'm here to talk about that. If you look at verse 43, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. You see, when God's people cherish the grace of God, we see a number of things happen. The first thing we see is that there is joyful dedication. There's joyful dedication in verses 27 through 30. Look at verse 27 and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving. Now, kids, what does it mean? Dedication, that's sort of a long word. What does dedication mean? Well, it means to offer or to give, okay? And it's easy when you hear that, kids, to think, well, that means that I'm offering something to God. I'm giving him something he doesn't already have. Um, And so in some ways, I'm giving God something. But that's not what dedication is. Dedication is not that we give something to God for Him to use, but a dedication is the profound awareness that God has given something to us and that we vow that we will use it for the purpose that God has given it to us for. And so we're acknowledging that this is what the Lord has done for us. He has given us this, in this case, the city, and we want to use this for his glory and we know as Christians that God has given us many things he's and and you know so yes church buildings things like that yeah that's God has given us these things but he has given us greater things like the truth of the gospel he's given us uh, the deposit of truth and the holy scriptures he's given us godly marriages and godly families he's given us the Christian life he's given us repentance that we would turn from our sin and trust in Christ and everything we have he has given to us we give nothing to him he has given it all to us so when we dedicate all these things whether we or, or even ourselves we are acknowledging in thankfulness that God gave it to us for a purpose and we are committed to use that for the purpose in which he intended And so we read in Nehemiah chapter 12 of this dedication ceremony. And the first thing that we see is is that Nehemiah did was he gathered all the Levites and the singers together from the surrounding villages. Uh, The the Levites had to dwell in the various cities as the servants of God to, to teach the people of God. And now they were being summoned to Jerusalem along with the singers. Now the singers were really a special branch of the Levites. And they were set aside in the time of David and their job was to, to lead the singing in the temple. Not that they did all the singing themselves, but they led in the singing. And each one of them was assigned a time to come and to serve on a shift. They might come and be a singer in the temple for a week or a period of time. But in this case, he calls all the singers together that they might have this mass choir to come for the dedication. And and as they and the priests prepared the dedication of the city, we read in verse 30 that they purified themselves. And not only the priests and the singers, but the people as well. And even the gates and the walls. Now, Nehemiah doesn't provide us with the details of what that cleansing ritual looked like. But if you look at other places in the Old Testament, you know, it, it sort of talks about things like um, there would be sprinkling with water, there would be maybe animal sacrifices, fasting, there would be abstinence from sexual relations, things like that that where the people were setting them aside. And the priests and the Levites, as well as the people in general, needed that cleansing as they came into the presence of the Lord to worship Him. You see, the great obstacle that, that all of us have all of us, is sin. God tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, that that he is pure, his eyes are pure to not see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is a holy God. And if we come into his presence with our sin, his holiness requires that his wrath would be poured out upon that sin, that rebellion against him. So for sinners to come into the presence of God, the defilement of sin has to be removed. Uh, The filth of sin needs to be washed away. These purification rituals were uh, symbolic of our spiritual need to come to have our sins taken away. And Jesus took our sins upon himself. He assumed the position of one in need of cleansing, even though Jesus was sinless. He did not sin at all. Jesus was and is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sin sinners, as Hebrews 7 talks about. He was made sin for us. Uh, His substitutionary atonement means that our sin is imputed or our sin is credited to him. And then his perfect life, his righteous life, was credited to those who would have faith in him. And the ritual of purification pointed to the fact that our hearts are spiritually unfit for the worship of the Almighty God. And so the only one that could enter into God's presence has, as Psalm 24 says, has to have clean hands and a pure heart. But I'll tell you, the Bible tells us that none of us have that. Matter of fact, Paul, in writing to the Romans, says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we have no hope in and of ourselves to be able to, to be in the presence of God, let alone have a fellowship, a, a relationship with God, like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. But that's where Christ came, that he might take and he might die on the cross, that he would take, and he would uh, he would take the have the wrath of God for our sins poured out upon him that he would pay our payment and then his righteous life would be given to us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Christ's righteousness. Well, that's why as we come in even our time of worship, we're reminded of that every Sunday. As part of our worship service, we have a confession of sin to acknowledge our need of God's forgiveness in Christ alone. And to, and, and to, and to worship God and to say, God, we come not only to confess our sins, but we come and, and we are reminded that still, even now, even as your children, we still do not deserve to come into your presence. But still, What you see is Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And we thank you, God, for that. We thank you, God, for your forgiveness. And we pray that you would forgive us for those sins that we have done this week. Raymond Brown, in his comments on this passage, points out how easily uh, we can err at this point. You know, we can be so focused on Uh, looking good on the outside and appearing to be righteous on the outside that uh, we forget that really what God sees is the heart. You know, so sometimes, and maybe you've been in churches like this, you know, where the church sort of acts holier than thou, it's because what they're focused on is looking good on the outside. I don't want anybody to know that I struggle with sin. I, I just want everybody to think that I'm perfect. You know, so... You know, I don't do that. I don't do this. You know, and there's all these things. It's sort of this attitude that they got it all together. I'll tell you, Kirk of the Plains, that's not us. You know, we, we admit that we struggle uh, with sin, that the only hope that we have is not because we're good enough to come to God, but it's only because of what Christ has done for us. Brown goes on and he says, During his ministry, Jesus frequently encountered religious zealots who were far more concerned about external cleansing than inward holiness. He, that is Jesus, exposed the Pharisees for painstakingly washing the outside of the cup and the dish, while inwardly they were full of greed and self-indulgence. And when we understand God's grace that God has given to those who place their trust in Him, uh, that He has forgiven them, There will be a joyful life of dedication to the Lord. The second thing we see is when God's people cherish the grace of God, there's joyful worship. Verses 31 through 43. We read in those verses how the people of God worship God for his work in their life. And much of what we read in this chapter has to do with music. Not all of it. If you look at verse 43, it talks about the sacrifices that were offered there. You had the the choirs that came up and they came up on the walls and they walked into the temple and they offered sacrifices. But much of this has to do with music, the lyres, the the different instruments that they played. You had the choirs that were on opposite sides of the wall and they were singing and the people were down below and, and hearing this as they were singing praises to God. Well, a preacher by the name of Charles Swindoll, he makes a great deal of importance of the singing Uh, in this chapter and uh, he says and I think rightly so he said singing has always been a striking feature of the worship of God's Old and New Testament people I don't know if you've ever thought about that but singing is big in the church It's uh, as we give praise to God he goes this is not true of other religions many use repetitive chants in some religions the clergy sing but the people don't But generally, the religions of the world are grim things. It's only in biblical religion that the people of God are characteristically joyful and express their joy in great singing. Now, why is that? Well, it's in response to the great act of God on our behalf, particularly in the death and and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who secured our salvation And because of that, there's a joy, because we know that we are a people, that if it was left up to us, we would spend eternity in hell. That God has made a way that we might be with him forever in heaven. And so no wonder we sing, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. We're going to sing that hymn as we close the service today. But that's why we sing that, because of the great joy that God has given to us. Well, look again at, at Nehemiah 12. The, the narrative tells us how Nehemiah brought the Levites, the magicians, the singers in from the outlying regions, took the people uh, up on the wall and staged a great procession or, or parade. One, one uh, choir went this direction with Nehemiah, the other choir went the other direction With Ezra and each of the groups, as I said, sang praises. And afterwards they converged at the temple and they offered sacrifices. And after that preliminary moment of the people standing upon the walls and sounding forth in joy, the day was filled with an atmosphere of great joy. As I said earlier, as I read earlier, excuse me, it says even the wives and the children rejoiced and and they were so caught up in praise that they could hear it for miles around the people were overwhelmed they they had come through great trials but they had come through the feeling and and they had come through the feeling of hopelessness and despair and spent many years moaning but now they were rejoicing in what god has done is that true of you today as you come with God's people to worship Him on this Sunday, do you come with, re- with great rejoicing? Do you know that you are nothing? Do you know that you deserve nothing and can do nothing, that everything that you have in Jesus is entirely of God and His grace? Then your heart must be overwhelmed with humble, deep, and unending praise to Him. You see, our worship is an indicator of how much we cherish God's grace shown for us. Let me say that again. Our worship, and I would even say maybe our singing, is an indicator of how much we cherish God's grace shown for us. Well, that brings us to our last point, that when God's people cherish the grace of God, there is joyful service and giving. Look at verses uh, 46. Four through forty-seven. Let me just read those two verses. Verse forty-four: On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And then verse forty-seven: And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So as we talked about earlier in this series, you know, in those days they didn't have banks. And there were these offerings that were brought into the temple uh, for the operation of the temple, much like we bring the tithes and the offerings in on Sunday mornings. Uh, and where are they going to put these? They had to put them in storerooms. And so they needed people to maintain and to care for those things. And then they would have to distribute those things to the singers and others who served in the temple. And, and what we see here is that the times of rejoicing and worship of God is appropriate. But such worship overflows into people's lives to those who have given themselves to God. Just like we read in Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That as Christians, we, we, we do that because we, we rejoice and we thank God for all He has done for us. And so for us to live sacrificially, for us to serve in the church or to give for the good of God and His kingdom, is a light, is a delight. Worship is not simply something we do on Sunday mornings, but it's how we live our lives as well. Heartfelt worship and rejoicing in God's grace lends itself to a life of service and giving. So, should we rejoice in God? Of course. We above all other people should rejoice in God. In fact, only those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ will have any sense of deep rejoicing and joy. But that's not all we have. We also have the privilege of serving God in our lives as we love other people and we care for them and we meet their needs and we we serve them in various ways. You see, it's from such passages as this that the New Testament encourages Christians uh, to give regularly and that we are to give not begrudgingly, but cheerfully and with enthusiasm. Being reminded of what God has done for us. We read in 2 Corinthians nine seven: Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's the privilege that we have when God is the center of our lives. That we no longer live just for us and what I get out of it but how I might serve him by loving others. You know as we As we think about this passage, Jesus is the great reconciler who makes the woeful heart sing. Right? Before we come to faith in Christ, oftentimes we're overcome by the problems and the worries of our life and our struggles. But Christ is the one who comes and gives us a new heart that causes us to sing. He is the source of our song and our rejoicing. He is the reason for our thanksgiving in our worship. Now I just have to tell you guys, you know we have different pianists and I appreciate Bev coming to play for us once a month and I've I've heard this from a number of musicians where they say, you know your church loves to sing. And I think part of the reason why you love to sing brothers and sisters is because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. But he is the reason for our thanksgiving and I want you to know that one day, you're going to be the part of a choir in heaven that will never stop singing. You'll be part of a people who will stand before God and worship Him uh, for all eternity, who will serve Him and, and show our love and our appreciation for Him. Israel's song in Nehemiah 12, Israel's song in Nehemiah 12 comes to an end but we will be part of a choir that will never end, that will sing his praises forever. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with you and to share with you more how you might do that. God is so good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much, Lord, for... Your word that you have given us today. Lord, we thank you for your love that you have shown to us. And God, for the joy that we can have. Yes, the Christian life is sometimes very difficult. And it's even in those difficulties, Lord, that you use those things in our lives to make us more like Christ. Uh, Lord, that you that you deal with the sin of our heart uh, Oftentimes by going through those things uh, to humble us, Lord, to make us dependent upon you, to trust you, to see your mighty power at work in our lives. Uh, And we are just so thankful, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you for the joy that we can have and pray that we would grow in that sense of knowing you and that rejoicing. But I also pray, Lord, for any that might not know you here today uh, or that hear this recording later. Uh, Lord, that you might open their eyes to behold the glory of who you are and that they might trust in you, that they might have that eternal life, that relationship with you as well. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.